I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Bob Stutman, one half of the two-person team of Stutman Switoski, on a mission to develop a plan of action to reverse the most devastating drug epidemic in American history, the opioid crisis. Bob was a DEA agent on the front lines in the war on drugs for over 25 years. Now he speaks to thousands of students, parents, and doctors each year to educate them and to understand the real whys and hows of the drug culture, straight from the mouths of the triers, users, and abusers. You can learn more about Bob and his very important work at the StutmanSwatowskiGroup.com. Bob, thank you for coming back today. Good morning, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we have been, we've done a series of, of podcasts together and a series of conversations, and somehow every time we talk, there's more layers of it that we need to talk about. And today what I really want to talk about is the fact that the doctors who are core and central to this opioid epidemic, to this prescription drug epidemic, they're the ones, and so they're not the pushers, but they're the, they're the, the interlopers in the middle of it, right? They're the ones that are making it happen. And the sad fact is that there's a lot that they don't even understand or know about what they're doing and the role they're playing in this, including their knowledge of the drugs. So can we talk about that part today? Absolutely. Um, and I, and I want to say up front, I am not an anti-doctor. I have a number of doctors in my family. But like you, I think the word you use is absolutely correct. They're the interloper, they're stuck in the middle. I think doctors have been put in an almost untenable position because of a number of different things. And when I speak to them and I speak to thousands a year, I, I, I tell them until they take back their profession, this issue is going to continue. Uh, and there are a number of different things that we could do to make that better. But doctors, in the beginning, get very little training on pharmacology in med school or DL school. Um, they, they actually get very little. Right. Um, I, I read one study somewhere, and I, I, I'm not citing it as accurate because I can't remember where I saw it, that vets, veterinarians, actually get as much or more pharmacology training in in uh, vet school as MDs do or DOs do in their schools. Uh, so they, they don't get very much, number one. Number two, I did see a JAMA study about two years ago that said most physicians are about five years behind on the science. They simply don't have time to update, uh, and this goes back to what I told you in one of our previous podcasts, that there are doctors who the day they graduate or the day they finish their last residency or fellowship become businessmen as opposed to doctors. So uh, yeah, they get very little training and they get most of their knowledge, as hard as this is to believe, most doctors, especially family physicians or interns, which are uh, internal medicine, which is the upfront, the real heavy writers of, of opioids and benzos, most of them learn about the drugs they're writing from the uh, big pharma reps who 
come in and tell them about it. Exactly. And let's just let's just dwell on that point for a second because I don't think people really realize that you put you threw so much content into that, that last two minutes that the limited training that doctors are getting in medical school, frighteningly, as little as they're getting on pharmacology, they're getting even less on alternative ways to treat a lot of these things, nutrition, um, emotional health, all that sort of stuff. So they're lacking in their education. And then, as you said, they are going into their practices. They've got pressure from the insurance companies to deliver so many meetings every year or so many um, patients every day. They don't have time to stay up on the research. How many, I don't even know off the top of my head, do you know how many drugs are approved by the FDA every year? Oh, I don't know, I'm sorry. No idea, too many. Whatever it is, too many and too many for the doctors to be able to keep up with that information. So the fact of the matter is, and this has gone on for decades because I interviewed for one of these jobs, that the doctors are trained in the prescription medications by the drug salespeople. It's like the fox guarding the head house. Yep. And I remember, I don't know if I told this to you one time, I mean, when, when I graduated college and I'm going back 35 years ago, more than 35 years, I interviewed with a prescription drug company to be a salesperson. So there I was, they wanted me 22 years old to go into the doctor's office and tell them what to do. I thought that was the dumbest, most irresponsible thing in the world. And yet that is happening in every doctor's office, everywhere, every style of medicine, including with regard to painkillers. Or one could say almost especially with regard to painkillers. I mean, think of what you just said. I I want your, your listeners to think about what you just said. Most physicians learn what they learn about what they put in your body from, let's take worst case scenario, a 22-year-old who just graduated college, who if you're lucky, had a couple of courses on biology or chemistry. And that's who's training our physicians, how to prescribe, how much to prescribe, etc. Well, not only that, there's, the you know, what do they say? History is, is written by the historians, right? So that mm-hmm. the the salespeople that are going into the doctor's office are presenting the marketing materials that the drug company chooses to present. So you told me there's a really frightening thing about um, Purdue Pharma, right, the makers of OxyContin, who flat out lied to the doctors about the chances of addiction from Oxy. That was the worst case. I I watched, um, last week I watched, rewatched a, video put up by Purdue Pharma of, and this was done in 96, I think, of their chief medical officer doing a presentation to a large group of doctors and just flat looking at them and saying, there's a 1% chance of of addiction for OxyContin. Just an absolute unequivocal flat lie. And they just told this to doctors and doctors believed them. And that was the beginning, in my opinion, of where we are today. Um, and, and by the way, I, I think we have to be careful to say, we're saying this about Purdue Pharma. They pled guilty in federal court to fraud uh, in 2008, I believe, or seven. Um, fraud for lying to doctors exactly as, as we described. Well, they do. And, you know, as we said, again, the doctors, 
they're trying the best that they can and they got put into a structure where their educators are from the pharma companies so whatever the pharma companies are telling them they're believing because they don't have the time or the wherewithal to be able to research and double check now let's talk about the fact that not only are they they getting that information from them but the pharma companies have been known to not necessarily report on all the research they've gotten FDA approvals when they haven't necessarily reported on all the research. Let's talk about Vioxx for pain. Vioxx was a painkiller. It was a, I'll call it, a, it was the killer app of pain a few years ago. And then it went out on the market. And then five years after the launch, it was pulled off the market because it was killing people. And what happened? They were actually, they'd suppressed research that showed that they knew about the dangers of Vioxx and yet hadn't released that in their application. So now go, go to the doctor's office and say, hey doctor, I've got this new painkiller. Here's how well it, it improves pain results. And yet the doctors didn't hear about the, oh, by the way, they might die of a heart attack. Yeah, and that, that is not a standalone case. That happens, uh, I won't say very frequently, but it certainly happens more than once or twice a year uh, where FDA just makes a mistake. Uh, the new painkiller just approved by FDA uh, is a perfect example, Desuvia. Um, the FDA advisory committee met without the chairman. Uh, he or she was not available, and they sent a memo to FDA saying that Desuvia should be approved. And when the chairman came back, he just said absolutely not, tried to get it pulled off their approval list, and it's still approved as far as I know. It's going into hospitals on January 1st, and it's a drug that can be 10 to 50 times stronger than fentanyl, which is 10 to 50 times stronger than heroin. Um, you and I are certainly not the same age, but uh, we're not teenagers, and did we ever think that heroin would be considered kiddie dope? Um, and, and that's what it is now when you compare it with fentanyl, or certainly the new Desuvia. It's like a, a fairly safe drug. But see, it just, it makes no sense to me. When you talk to doctors, they all nod their heads and say, yes, 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 I know that opioids are dangerous, we know that there's an addiction problem, and we need to reduce our prescribing of it. And yet, somehow, Every year, the prescriptions go up. So they nod their heads, and yet they're still prescribing it. And yet they, they're, they're not following the basic rules of, you know, you should only, you should only um, prescribe for two or three days' worth at a time yeah. in certain cases, and they're prescribing for 30 days, and they're giving uh, re renewal instructions with those. Yeah, I, I know I said this to you before in one of our previous um, podcasts, but... One of the days I remember, I spoke to a fairly large group of physicians in Europe, and the dean of one of the most prestigious medical schools in Europe stood up and said to me in front of a bunch of European doctors, I know American doctors are very smart. Are they smarter than every other doctor in the world? Because, again, as we've said a number of times, but I think it bears repeating, this is uniquely an American problem. 
This is not the problem in Europe, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia. None of it. It's a uniquely American problem. And it's the way our doctors were trained, the way they get their information now, and the system is not changing. I, I, I mean, we've been doing these for a while. I haven't heard any talk of, from anybody about changing the system. No, and even in all the talk about the opioid crisis and all the talk, and we're going to do have a different conversation about changing culture, right? And how do we shift the culture? Um, right. But you know, they're all looking. They're they're looking at the wrong root cause, and they're not looking at root causes. They're kind of looking at transfer the costs. They're looking at how do we save people from dying of overdoses rather than why did they start and what's going on underneath it all. So also, let's talk about the money for doctors, right? So so there's always the follow the money trail. So pharma, you know, we understand that they've got a lock on, on lobbying in Washington, D.C. We know how much money they're paying in marketing. We know that we're one of two countries in the world that have direct-to-consumer advertising. You've talked about that. But there's also yep. the aspect, as far as the doctors are concerned, they're still getting money, I'll call it kickbacks and rewards and little bennies and little perks from the pharma companies. Now that's been cracked down on, but I don't know if people realize that end of things, right? So they're getting, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. The nice salesperson comes into the doctor's office, gives them free samples, brings them to lunch, brings lunch for their whole office people. And all of that creates an environment of the doctor feeling obliged and feeling like, oh, I got to prescribe my friend's stuff. Like he likes the guy. When you like the guy, you use their stuff. That's exactly right, huh? Most people buy from somebody who they like. So the job of that former rep is to get liked. And I, I wish it was as simple as buying a lunch for the office or um, free samples. The problem is there are not all doctors, certainly, but a, a good number of doctors will take fees for speaking, and speaking is in quotes where they do a half-hour presentation someplace and get a fairly good sum of money, uh, or they get sent for training with their wives or husbands, and the training will last two hours out of a uh, two- or three-day weekend in Hawaii or the Virgin Islands, etc. And by the way, this is not secret. Um, if you're a patient of a doctor, and you want to see if your doctor takes money from Big Pharma, as Sarah and I talked about, you simply go to propublica.org, look under Physician Checkup, and it will show you your doctor. It will show two things, how many pills he writes, meaning controlled substances, opioids, uh, benzodiazepines such as Xanax, and it will also show how much money they take from Big Pharma. So doctors are shocked when they find that out. This is not a secret. You can find out about your own doctor. You can. And again, it's human behavior. You know, As you said in the very beginning, I'm not anti-doctor either. Um, and doctors are saving many lives. In our modern medicine, we do have an amazing healthcare system, but there's also these human frailties in it. There's a deep flaw in the system where the doctors aren't getting the education. They are, you know, it's a, it's a human thing. Every, every business in the world 
is relationship building. Every business in the world, you do business with people you're comfortable with, and that's exactly what the pharma companies are doing. But in this case, the doctors are losing their objectivity at times because they are getting these perks and, and freebies from the pharma companies. Now, this isn't opioids, but you know, I will tell you, I was in a doctor's office a number of years ago, and you know, they have a closet full of free samples. The doctors give all sorts of free samples. The pharma companies have all sorts of free samples. So the doctor gave me a sample of something. I was having some stomach issues, and he handed it to me, and I said, I'm very drug sensitive. Is that the lowest dose you have? And he assured me, yes, it was. So I took the samples. I went home, and sure enough, it wasn't. But he had no idea. Again, they don't have the time to learn about it. They're believing whatever the pharma sales reps are telling them. And then they've got a cupboard full of stuff to give away for free. And now people get locked into those free samples or those drugs, depending on what category it is. Yep, you're, you're exactly correct. Um, the amount of training that doctors get is measured on certainly uh, controlled substances is measured in hours, not days, not quarters, not semesters. It's measured in hours. And it really is frightening. And again, we're the only country in the world that's like that. If you go to med school in Europe, you spend far more time about the drugs you're prescribing. And I may have said this before, but uh, this is in no way meant to insult a doctor. But if any of your listeners want to know what the medicines are that they're taking, what they can do to them, uh, are they good, bad, is it cross purposes of the different meds you're taking, never ask a doctor, ask a pharmacist. If you can get the, the time with the pharmacist, right? That's why I like going to the local pharmacy versus the you know big chain pharmacies yep. because I feel like I can build a better rapport with them. I actually do too. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a local pharmacy who I love and I talk to about the meds that I'm prescribed on a fairly regular basis. Mm -hmm. so, um, so this is interesting. So here's a story. I just wrote a blog about this last week. My mother, um, who's 86 years old, she had a little bit of a fall at home and she got a compression fracture in her back. And she went to the hospital, they did an x-ray, they did an MRI, and they sent her home with a lidocaine patch, Motrin, Tramadol, which is an opioid, but not as addictive as whatever oxy something that they also sent her home with. Now they insisted that she took, brought all four of those home and filled all prescriptions because that um, managing a compression fracture really is managing pain. You can't do anything else with it but let your bone heal. Well, that's fine. They gave me, you know, they gave her the speech about, you know, go from bottom up, do the least that you can, but you, that they kept saying, but you want to manage the pain, you don't want to have the pain. They did talk about that you, you're not going to be out of pain. So they, they correctly said it's not about zero pain. So that was good. But they insisted that she take all those things home with her and that she have them and really encouraged her to use them. Well, three days later, I brought her home a salve, a CBD salve, THC-free, topical, this whole new cannabinoid system, painkillers. She used that topical. She hasn't used a single drug since. Not the lidocaine, not the Motrin, not the tramadol. None of it. 
Now, no doctor was telling her that because no pharmacist, you know, no prescription pharmacy company is calling on the doctor selling them that stuff. Yeah, um, I'm going to repeat this, but I I just do think it's the one story that wraps all of this up, what we're talking about. Uh, The young lady that got stopped by the state police in Massachusetts driving under the influence of drugs. When they stopped her, she hit a tree, she broke her hand. They took her to the emergency room in the emergency room. In front of the doctors and nurses, she overdosed twice, uh, and they gave her Narcan to bring her out, which is the appropriate drug. But the point is, they clearly knew she was a drug addict. She overdosed in their emergency room. They took her in the back room, cast her hand, without telling the state police who she was still in custody. They gave her a prescription for 60 Oxycontin, and she went home and died of an Oxycontin overdose. Of course she did. And that is the classic picture of why we are where we are. Uh, and my answer to that is, yeah, they cured the pain. They killed the patient. Uh, and, and that's what's happening in America today. Um, it, it's, you know, there are people that blame Mexico or, or China, etc. They all supply... Uh, a piece of, of the of the drug, there's no question. But we are the primary at fault to the people here. We are killing our own citizens. Um, since you and I talked, which I think was two weeks ago or something like that, uh, there was a new report issued that for the third year in a row, the average life expectancy of white middle-aged American men has declined. So white middle-aged American men are going to live a shorter life expectancy than their parents or grandparents. And for the third year in a row, it's getting shorter. It's not getting longer as it has since George Washington's time. The last time this happened was in 1915 when we were in the middle of that horrible flu epidemic, killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and this has not happened since 1915. Primary cause of shortening of lifespan, drug overdose and suicides, and many times those two are, of course, tied together. So we're we're just wiping out our own population. Um, And and again, to to put it in a size spectrum, over 70,000 people are dying a year of overdoses, yep. yep. 70,000. Yep. Now, I don't know what, what the seating is. Imagine a football stadium full of people, and then they get they all get wiped out. Right, well, I, you're absolutely right. I, I like to use the analogy, and again, I'm gonna repeat it, of a day. Roughly 205 people die a day from drug overdose, and a lot of people say, well, that's not so many, there's 350 million Americans. The average plane crash anywhere in the world, commercial airline crash, kills 100 and either 27 or 47 people. That's for the average commercial airline crash anywhere in the world, roughly 147 people die. Can you imagine if we had a commercial airline crash in the U.S. 
every single day of the year, 365 days a year. This country would be horrified. Uh, our government would probably shut down the commercial airline industry until we figure this out. Um, and yet we're losing more than that to drugs, and we're just sort of uh, ho-humming it, pretending well, it's not happening. We are, and I think also that the doctors are complicit, in, and then I think that the patients are complicit, and the reason, again, this podcast today, this one we're talking about now, is because I think patients don't realize how much their doctors don't know and how much of it is you know, naivety on the doctor's part or these cronyism on the doctor's part or them just trying to survive in the world that they have. There's another aspect that I want people to understand. It's not quite related to opioids, but I think it's important when we're talking about what doctors do and don't know. There's a practice called off-label prescription of drugs. And I think people really need to understand that. One of the things that um, doctors, mainstream medicine knocks natural medicine on regularly is the fact that there aren't these large, quantitative, double-blind, huge research studies on natural products. Well, off-label use is when the doctors, they just guess. Based on some information that they have, they take one drug and they use it for an entirely different use or purpose than what it was approved for and what it was studied for. That's zero research on these what are called off-label uses. And they're doing it over and over and over again, millions and millions and millions of time, every day, all sorts of classes of drugs for people. And same thing, people need to understand that the, the risk when doctors are prescribing in that way. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. In other words, once the FDA approves a drug for use with a disease, it, in effect, is approving it for use for any reason, any time, any place, because it is absolutely legal for that doctor to write that drug for anything he or she desires, and it is absolutely legal, even though, as Sarah said, it's never been studied for that, and it was never approved for that. But we have a system called off-label, which means they can approve it for anything. They, they can write it for anything they want. And there are a number of people who believe there is as much off-label writing of prescriptions in the United States, in fact, more off-label writing than there is for on-label writing, which is writing for the well, and a lot of this off-label writing is actually in the drugs related to depression and anxiety. So, you know, Zoloft, an antidepressant, being used off-label for erectile dysfunction. Another antidepressant being used for ADHD. And those are drugs that are, you know, people, A, they've got terrible side effects, and B, people do get addicted to those as well. Yep. And... Uh that's the American system. And again, everything we're talking about here, everything we've talked about for the last 20, 30 minutes is an American issue. It is not a problem with medicine in the world. It is a problem of medicine in America. Um, I read an article, again, in 
since the last time we talked, Sarah, uh, about once again trying to give more education to doctors who are writing prescriptions for benzos or long-term opioids, uh, and the regulation or the ruling was killed by the American Medical Association. On the grounds of what? It was not even killed by Big Pharma. Why was it killed? The American Medical Association. Why? Um, Too much burden on doctors. Too much burden on doctors to be educated? Yes. Yes. They don't have the time to do all that, what they call CMEs, continuing medical education. So there's a a saying in the computer programming business, which is, we don't have the time to do it right. Thank God we have the, mon- the, the money to do it over. Yep. They don't have the time to educate them properly. That's disgusting. That's the second time it's happened. Uh, about four years ago, FDA or, or CDC tried to require, and I'm trying to think, it, it was either two or four hours additional training for docs who were writing prescriptions for extended release opioids. And that got killed by, again, the American Medical Association. So here's what people need to know. Let's wrap this up. I mean, that they need to understand that their doctors don't have the education and training that you think they do when they're writing the prescriptions. I mean, what, what would you have people do? Two things. And, and, again, it's a repeat, but it's the simplest thing they can do. Number one, never ask your doctor about a pill. Ask your pharmacist. And Sarah gave you a great idea. If you need to, if your pharmacist won't talk to you in the big national chains, go to a local place. Uh, But talk to your pharmacist. Do not talk to your doctor. That's not because the doctor is a bad person, nor is it because they're stupid. It's because they haven't been trained on pharmacology the way they need to be. So number one, talk to your pharmacist. Maybe the most important thing we will say in this segment. Number two, we mentioned bad practices that doctors follow. Again, not because they're necessarily bad people, it's because of the way they've been trained. If you want to find out how much your doctor is A, writing, and B, is he or she taking money from Big Pharma, you go to ProPublica, P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A.org, and then you go to the section that says prescriber checkup. I'm not exactly sure where it is, but if you look under prescriber checkup, you will find your doctor in your county, how much they prescribe, and do they take money. Uh, I always get the question, by the way, how come this is public? It's based on Medicare rights. So it is public knowledge. So the number there is far less than your physician actually writes, but it's uh, Medicare rights, so you can compare physicians. Yeah. And again, just the, in the macro of it, don't assume your doctor really knows. Question everyone and everything. Yep. All right. You have to be your own advocate. Absolutely. Or somebody in your family, something like that. Absolutely. All right, Bob Stutman, the Stutman Swatowski Group, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure. I'm talking to Robert Stutman, 
a 25-year veteran of the Drug Enforcement Administration, about the serious threat to society that exists as a result of the devastating drug epidemic that's overtaking America. This crisis is affecting people of all ages, genders, and social classes. But unlike drug problems of the past, this one is starting at the doctor's office and hospitals. Bob is on a mission to reverse this horrific killer. He's just one of the thousands of experts featured in our twice-monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal, who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to Bob's wisdom regarding the dangers in our medicine cabinets, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including living a healthy life, traveling safer and cheaper, how to find the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.